Some things happen in life that change everything in a moment. Think of that moment a few weeks ago when um, Charles was, was probably sitting by his mother's bedside and his mum, the Queen, passed away. He became someone who no longer had living parents. He became the head of his family. But most significantly of all, in that moment, he became king. And that meant he became someone whose work was suddenly going to be very different to what it had been before then. He became someone whose relationship with the public would have to look very different for the rest of his life. In a moment, everything changed for him. I think about that moment when somebody becomes a parent. Things change a lot when you're pregnant for the first time, but that's nothing compared to the moment when the baby is born. This might be a bit close to home for some people, but um, that's, that's, that's nothing compared to that moment when the baby is born. Suddenly, you have this responsibility for another life. Suddenly, your patterns of sleeping and eating, your daily routine, your leisure time, they're vastly altered in an instant. In that moment, so many aspects of your life are altered and they never really go back to what they were before you become a parent. We have moments in life that cause a sudden dramatic change. And becoming a Christian is a bit like that. The word that we often describe, um, that moment of becoming a Christian is salvation. In that moment of becoming a Christian, we are saved from a future-facing judgment and hopelessness, and we're saved to a new reality where we are in relationship with God, 100% forgiven, adopted into his family with a certain future of life with him in the new creation. Our status and our future is completely transformed in a moment. Now, if you're hearing that, um, today, and that's not your experience, not something you personally have experienced. I'd love to chat to you more about that at the end or, or grab a drink or something with you sometime. But we have these moments in life, don't we, that bring huge change in an instant. But then there's another kind of moment that we experience in life. It's the kind of moment that might bring about some change when it first happens, but actually we don't really see it working itself out for weeks, months, even years. Take, for example, that kind of uh, conversation or, or, or that comment that someone makes that plants an idea in your head that years later you look back on and you realize that it changed the trajectory of your life. That idea was planted then in that conversation and it, and it grew and it means that now your life looks very different to how it would have looked if you hadn't have had that conversation. I can think of a few times in my life where that's been the case. Or, or, or let's take a more negative example. Think about that moment when you received the diagnosis of a chronic health condition. Whilst the initial, initial diagnosis will change a lot, it's also true that it's only as the condition starts to take hold and affect us more and more that we see the full effects of that moment that happened in the past of getting the diagnosis. And then let's come back to Christianity. Because when you become a Christian, yes, there are some things about you that will change dramatically and instantly like we just thought about. But there are many things that fit into this second category too. 
If you're a Christian here today, there'll be many things in your life that are slowly, gradually changing as a result of, com- of you coming to know Jesus however many months, years ago, however long ago it was. And it's this second category of change that we're going to be thinking a bit more about today. Now, to help us think about this, we're going to focus on uh, two headings, uh, workout and shine out. As I, re- as I was reading that earlier, I thought, oh, it sounds like a, a, a session at the gym, doesn't it? Workout and shine out. That's not where we're going. Uh, workout and shine out. Let's start with workout. Now, you um, might remember that the, the book of Philippians that we're looking at is actually a letter written by a man called Paul to a church. We started um, thinking about salvation a few minutes ago, didn't we? That gift of forgiveness and relationship and life that you receive when you become a Christian. And in Philippians so far, we've seen some beautiful descriptions of that salvation. Last week, we heard about Jesus who, in very nature God, chose to humble himself, to become a human, as a human to be a servant, and then ultimately to die, to become obedient to death. That was for us, to serve us, to save us. And we've also seen some examples of how that salvation is working itself out in the lives of the Christians in the church. We've heard of their love. We've seen their confidence in proclaiming the gospel even in the face of opposition. We've seen their partnership in the gospel. For the Christians in Philippi, Being a Christian is bringing real transformation, real fruit in their lives. And that's where Paul starts. Just look with me um, at chapter 2, verse 12. So Philippians chapter 2, 1179, if you're in the church Bibles. um, And let me read verse 12. He starts by saying this. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, So these are Christians who are pursuing obedience to God. Their salvation is working itself out in their life in a pursuit of obedience to God. And so we have to ask ourselves the question here, could Paul say the same about you, about me? I hope the answer to that is yes. It might be an an uncomfortable question for some of us. We might look at our lives. We might see that actually, for a while now, we've just been drifting as a Christian. We've lost focus on following Jesus. Others, Others of us might be able to point to evidence of growth in our lives, and we should celebrate, and we should give thanks to God for that. But in one sense, the question that really matters is this. What happens next in your life? Where do we go from here? And Paul couldn't be clearer on that. Look again at um, verse 12, and I'll read from the beginning of it again. It says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation. Continue to work out your salvation. That's what he calls them to do. What does that mean? Let me first say what it doesn't mean. (laughs) Let me tell you two mistakes that people sometimes make in their thinking about what it means to be a Christian. Mistake number one is this. We think salvation must be earned. For God to accept you, for God to forgive you, 
for God to allow you into heaven, into the new creation. You have to earn that. Do enough good stuff. Be religious enough. Be better than the um, average person. The, the way people sometimes think about it is with those kind of scales. Um, at the end of your life, kind of God will look at the good things that you've done and he'll weigh them up against the bad things that you've done. And as long as you kind of tip the balance the right way, then you'll be fine. You're in. The Bible is absolutely clear that, is, that that is not the way things work. We could never do enough to be acceptable to a God who is pure and perfect. Salvation isn't about what we've done. Salvation is by grace. That means that salvation is a free gift. It's a free gift not something we earn. It's paid for Jesus, paid for by Jesus at the cross. All we have to do is accept it. We come to Jesus. We, we admit that we need his help. We need his rescue. And he freely rescues us. He forgives us based on what he has done, not on what we have done. And so when Paul says, work out your salvation, he doesn't mean work hard enough to be saved. That's not what he's saying. Now, if you're a Christian here today, hopefully you think, so far, so obvious. <laughs> but here's the, mis the second mistake that I think we sometimes make with this that I think um, trips us up more often. You might be down with the idea that salvation is all about what Jesus has done for us, not about what we do. But what comes next? What comes after that moment that we're saved? And here's what we sometimes think. We think, now I've been saved, I need to prove that I deserved it. We think, to keep in God's favour, for, for him to keep, I don't know, even liking me, I need to up my game. His continued acceptance of me is dependent on how good I am on how well I'm doing at being a Christian. Let me give you a telltale sign of, of whether or not this is something you're believing. Let's say you have an area of sin in your life that is a kind of recurrent battle for you. Well, that's the case. When you've fallen into that sin, have you ever found yourself praying and saying something like this to God? God, I'm sorry I did that thing again. Please forgive me, because I'm really going to try and be different this time. I really, really, really mean sorry this time. I, didn't, I, I mustn't have the last time, but I really mean it this time. What you've done there is you've assumed that God's acceptance of you depends on how well you're performing. So you try to convince him that you're going to be good enough. <laughs> Now, I hope that we're all steeped enough in grace that this isn't something that you'd ever do. But let me tell you something. For years, I would pray prayers like that. And so I'm sure there's some of us here to do, who, who do that still. The other way that we show this error is, is rather than kind of praying that kind of prayer after we've sinned, we just don't pray. We don't feel worthy to come to God. Perhaps you see that in yourself instead. But again, what we're doing there is we're thinking that our ongoing acceptance with God is dependent on what we've done. 
So if we've sinned, we don't feel like we can come to God. It's about what we've done rather than what Jesus has done. But let me state this as clearly as I can. Our continued acceptance by God as Christians isn't dependent on us. We started the Christian journey with salvation by grace, the free gift. And we continue in that grace. The verse that says, states this so clearly is in Romans. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. It doesn't have a caveat on the end, and who, who, who stops sinning. No, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. If you are in Jesus, if you're united to him, in other words, if you're a Christian, then there will never be condemnation for you. Oh, here's how Paul puts it in Colossians. He says, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, in other words, just as you became a Christian by grace, by receiving Jesus, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him. The way in to the Christian life is by the grace of Jesus. And the way on in the Christian life is by grace in Jesus. It's about him. And so here's what this means. It means that when Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, continue to work out your salvation, it doesn't mean that we have to work for our salvation. And it doesn't mean that our ongoing salvation and acceptance is dependent on what we do. That's what it doesn't mean. What, what actually does it mean then? I think what Paul is referring to here is what we started with. Becoming a Christian is one of those things that in an instant so much dramatically changes, but it's also something that goes on changing us into the future. And so what Paul is saying is this. From the moment you become a Christian, your life work will be Figuring out how that decision impacts every area of your life. Work out your salvation. To work out our salvation is to see it work its way into every single nook and cranny of who we are. Being a Christian affects the way that we approach work, the way that we think about our spare time, the way that we think about rest. It impacts the way that we drive. It impacts our relationship with alcohol, how we parent, how we um, think about ourselves as neighbours, how we treat our colleagues and friends and enemies. Being a Christian affects everything. That's what it means to work out our salvation. But what I want us to notice here is the verb. Work out, he says. Working out our salvation is just that, it work. It doesn't just happen. You can't let go and let God just crack on in your life. Paul is very clear. If being a Christian is going to bring change in your life, you need to work that out. You need to work at it. You need to figure out the parts of your life that have been untouched by the gospel. The, the parts of your life where you're living in, t in contradiction to the gospel that you believe and in contradiction to the God that you worship. And when you've figured out those parts of your life, you need to do the hard work of bringing change in those areas. Sometimes that's very hard work over many years for, for parts of our life. Let me reiterate. The goal of this isn't to prove yourself to God or to anyone else. 
The goal is to allow the good news, your salvation, to penetrate and transform everything. When life is lived according to how God designed it, life is lived well. Life is lived how it should be, in a whole, complete, unfractured, untainted way. It's what we're made for. What, on, what is on offer here is, is life lived as it should be. But getting to that, living that way, takes work. Work out your salvation. And Paul goes on in verse 12 to tell us the kind of attitude or the posture that we should have as we work out our salvation. Just look down um, with me again. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, if you're anything like me, you might find that a bit surprising. If we were writing this verse, what we'd write is something like, work out your salvation with grit and determination. Or, or work out your salvation with single-mindedness and, and perseverance. Or, or work out your salvation with patience and a stiff upper lip. But that's not what he says. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What's he getting at there? Well, here's what we need to realize. Fear in the Bible is not the same as being afraid. In fact, I, I think I'm right in saying that the most common command that God gives to his people in the Bible is, do not be afraid. So we're not being told to be afraid here. We're not meant to be scared. The call is to, to fear and trembling. So let me just try to show you what this means with kind of a couple of illustrations. Imagine a bride. She enters the church um, on her wedding day on the arm of her dad or, or brother or, or whoever. And for the first time that day, she looks down the aisle and she sees her fiancé. In a few minutes' time, he is going to become her husband. In that moment, what she experiences there is a bit like the biblical idea of fear. She's not afraid, but she thinks back, maybe, to all of those times when she was a teenager, when she thought about this moment. She thinks back to when she first met this man, and maybe something clicked. She wondered if this might be the one. Or she thinks about the weeks or the, the months afterwards where it dawned on her how compatible they were. She thinks about their engagement, the ways that she's dreamed about what their married life might be like, what their future together might hold. And in that moment, when she steps into the church and she sees her fiancé, all of those hopes and aspirations come to bear. She realises the enormity of what is about to happen. This is huge. And it causes fear and trembling. Let me give you another example. Imagine you're an artist. For some of you, that'll be easy to do. Uh, for others, less easy. But imagine you're an artist. Um, you've been working on your paintings. You've been kind of plodding away at this as a career for a while now, being creative, selling some, doing fine um, within your um, art. And then one day the phone rings. You pick it up. Oh, hello, could I speak to Scott, please? Speaking. Uh, and the conversation goes on, and 
you realize it's the assistant of a hugely successful, critically acclaimed artist who you've admired for years. They've seen your work and they like it. In fact, the reason they're ringing is because they want to come down to your studio and spend some time learning from you. Imagine that feeling, that fear and trembling. Now, none of those give you the full picture of what it actually is, but hopefully it gives you a sense of kind of what this is about. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's what Paul says. So why should that be our attitude? Well, look at how he continues, verse 12. He says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. As we uh, pursue transformation, as we seek to see our faith transform every area of our life, we do it with fear and trembling because God is working in us. Just taking the enormity of that for a moment. The God who created the universe with a word. The God who sets the paths of the planets. The God who knows the intricacies of an atom. The God who has the power to raise the dead works in. The Christian life is not done alone. We don't just grit our teeth and crack on. God, by his spirit, partners with us, works in us, and makes change possible. And notice that um, it's not that kind of, as long as we make the first step, then God gets alongside us and helps us out. It's not like we think, okay, let's take an example. I need to change the way that I talk about my partner. And now I've made that decision, God gets on board and helps us by his spirit to change in that area. That's not what Paul is describing here. We don't kind of make the first step and God, God helps us out. Look again what he says. He says, God works in you to will and tact. And that's saying something massive here. He's saying that it is God who even gives you the will to change. He is the one who, who shows the area of our life that we need to change. And he's the one who gives us the desire, the will, to bring transformation in that area of life. And then, after he's given us that desire, he is the one who enables us to act in that area. He's the one who makes us want to change, and he's the one who enables us to change. God works, us, works in us to will and to act. It's 100% down to God. Once heard this described as a 200% truth. Um, work out your salvation. That's what he says first. You need to work at this hall of life transformation. It's 100% down to you. The responsibility there is put on your shoulders. You need to work at it. It's 100% you. But actually, God is the one who works in you to will and to act. It's 100% God. Change couldn't happen unless God gives you the desire for change and the ability to carry out that change. It's not 50% down to me, 50% down to God. It's not that I make the first move and then God takes it from there. It's 100% down to me to pursue this. 
but it's also 100% God who's making it happen. It's a 200% truth, which doesn't actually make sense, but that's what the Bible says. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Now, we spent ages on um, and that's because understanding that is so foundational for, for understanding the rest of what's going on here. So we'll much more briefly touch on the second point. Point one was to work out. Secondly, then, shine out. Paul now takes that big idea of, of working out your salvation and he applies it to one very specific example, which Michael alluded to earlier, verse 14. Do everything without grumbling or arguing grumbling. That's where Paul's going with this. Now, you might think, come on, Paul, pick something bigger. Like, he could have chosen what it looks like to work it out in our marriages or in, in our battles with lust or greed or anything, but he doesn't. He chooses grumbling. I actually think that Paul is onto something really important here. We could take a whole sermon to think about this, but let me just try and boil, boil down what I think's going on here. Grumbling can wear many different hats in our lives. Grumbling is what happens when we, we look at something that has had loads of brilliant things about it, but our joy of it is robbed because we focus on the things that weren't good. How was your holiday? Oh, it was too hot. Oh, the journey was too long. Oh, we couldn't get a bed by the pool. That's grumbling. It's highlighting the fault of a, a really lovely thing that you've done. But grumbling can express itself in cynicism as well. It's when we complain that, well, that's just how my life is. That's how the world is. My situation will never change. That's grumbling. Or when we look at someone who is, I don't know, struggling or being unreliable or difficult or whatever it is, and we think that person's always going to be like that. There's no hope for them. And so we don't pursue them. That kind of cynicism there is a form of grumbling. It's when we're faced with a situation and we think we might as well not bother trying because nothing ever seems to work. Grumbling can be that tendency to kind of see the bad in things or it can look like cynicism. There's lots of other ways that we could think about grumbling. But at the root of grumbling, I think, is two things. Entitlement and unbelief. Grumbling comes from entitlement, that sense that this thing is hard, this thing is not how it should be, and crucially, I deserve different. So I'm going to grumble about it. I deserve better than this. Entitlement leads to grumbling, but so does unbelief. When we're grumbling, what we're saying is this. We're saying what God is doing or not doing here isn't what's best. He doesn't know what's best in this situation. He hasn't got this situation under his control. Therefore, I'm going to mourn about it. Actually, that's unbelief. Now, I could spend a long time unpacking that more. Um, do chat about it at your life group this week. But Paul's call is for us to work out our salvation by doing everything without grumbling. Now, hear this. The call here isn't for a kind of fake smile that pretends that nothing is wrong. 
lament is a legitimate category in the Bible. I'd encourage you to go back. We did a kind of a short sermon series on this a while ago. Go back and listen to that if you want to think more about it. But essentially, we can and we should experience sorrow at things that are bad, things that are not how they should be. But lament is facing up to the hard things in life, recognizing them as bad, but still trusting God in the middle of it. Grumbling with its complaining and cynicism and unbelief and just whining on about whatever it is that is there is not good. And yet, in Britain today, grumbling and complaining is almost seen as a virtue. It's just what we do. We fail to grasp why it can be so damaging. So I hope you can begin to see there. You've just got a taste of how damaging grumbling can be to our lives. And that's why Paul goes there. Work out your salvation, he says. So do everything without grumbling. Just imagine if we were a church characterized by being different in this area by not being grumblers. Imagine if with our interactions with each other, we weren't those who picked faults or complained about what's going on or focused on negatives and who cynically viewed our lives and our town um, with a grumbling attitude. Imagine if instead, even in those things that aren't Right, we expressed trust in God. We took him at his word. We believe that he can work in all things for the good of those who love him. We believe that he is in control, he is powerful, and he can bring real change even in this situation that we're not happy about. Think about how that would change our conversations. Well, here's what difference Paul says it would make. Verse 14. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God, without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. Kathy and I, when we were um, expecting Reuben, um, went on a, um, on a holiday in the middle of winter to Iceland. Now, Iceland in the middle of winter is dark, <laughs> uh, like dark in a way that I've never really experienced before. There are very few hours of daylight in the day. And it's also a place that is kind of got a very small population, very little light pollution. And one night, in the middle of the night, we went on a bus tour up a hill, um, away from the city, uh, and the aim was to watch for northern lights. Now, we didn't see any northern lights, <laughs> but what we did see was just as spectacular. The night sky, when it's really properly dark, is spectacular. We could see the, the kind of smudge of the, of the Milky Way as it streaked across the sky. The, the sheer number of stars that we could see was breathtaking. It was an incredible experience, humbling and mind-blowing all at the same time. In a truly dark sky, the way that shi uh, stars shine is extraordinary. 
Now, Paul is writing here to a world pre-electricity, to a world of people who knew what a dark sky was like, who knew how the, night, how the skies, how the stars shone. And here's what he says to them. When you live in this world without grumbling, you will stand out like those stars in the night sky. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Sure, uh, many of us feel the challenge of that. But Paul would feel it more than any of us. Remember Paul's situation. He is in prison. He's potentially facing the death penalty. Outside prison, there are people who are, st are trying to kind of uh, stick mud to his name. They're trying to tarnish his reputation. If anyone has a reason to grumble, it's Paul. But look how he finishes this section, verse 17. Even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. We'd look at him and we'd think he's got every reason to grumble. But he sees his situation through eyes of faith. He sees the way that God is using even these awful circumstances for good. And so rather than grumble, did you see what he did? He rejoiced. He has joy in the middle of it. Let's end there. This series is um, called Joy. And once again, we see the path to joy. Work out your salvation, Paul says. Make 100% effort to see the gospel shape every area of your life. Do it with fear and trembling, knowing that it's actually 100% down to God to work in you, to will and to act, 200% true. And specifically, he says, let this work out in your grumbling. Root out that British attitude that is cynical and sees the negatives even in the best situations. Trust God, cling to his word. As you do, as you speak about your situation, you look different. You'll shine like stars. Your approach to life, even the hard things in life, will be characterized not by grumbling, but by a faith that leads to joy. And that will be beautiful to see. That is worth pursuing. Let me pray that we will.